Chapter One of the Women Who Make Our Novels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Friday. The Women Who Make Our Novels by Grant Overton. Chapter One Edith Wharton. The order of authors in this book is accidental and the circumstance that the first chapter of the book is upon edith wharton is also accidental also and therefore which is to say that it is not accidental at all for if there is any lesson which life teaches us it is the existence of an order a plan in unsuspected places to say therefore that a thing is accidental is to pay it the most glorious compliment it is to say that it is ordered or ordained decreed immutably fixed upon from the beginning not of a book but of a universe there is about anything accidental something absolutely divine to dart off at a tangent for a mere moment there was this much in the divine right of kings an accident at the beginning of it had the kings contented themselves with this accidental character had they preserved the spontaneity that surrounded the first of their crowd there would be more of them left but such reflections and the working out of them a pleasurable kind of intellectual counterpoint may be left to gilbert keith chesterton we are concerned wholly with the women who make our novels and by accident of title if you like more with the women than with their novels the two are no more perfectly separable than milk and cream and very often the best thing to do is not to try to separate them but rather to stir them up together as the only excuses for a book other than a work of fiction are either that it presents facts or suggests ideas we shall try to talk rather simply much more simply than in our first paragraph of this chapter about american women novelists and their books simply and honestly if we say little about literature it is because what is usually described as literature is nothing better than a pale reflection of life edith wharton comes first in this book that she may the better stand alone she has always stood alone the distinguishing thing about her is the distinguishing thing about her work aloneness which is not the same thing as aloofness she is not aloof at fifty-six she is working in france doing that which her hand finds to do her aloneness arises from the facts of her life never were so many favoring stars clustered together as for her when she was born she had everything she was born in new york item one in eighteen sixty two edith newbold jones the daughter of Frederick Jones and Lucretia Stevens Rhinelander Jones. Item 2. She was educated at home. Item 3. And was married to Edward Wharton of Boston in 1885. Item 4. No, countless items of luck had already intervened. In other words, Mrs. Wharton, granddaughter of General Ebenezer Stevens of revolutionary fame, came of distinguished family, was the child of extremely well-to-do parents, had every advantage that careful instruction, generous travel, and cultivated surroundings could confer upon her. Much of her life has been spent in Italy, a perfect acquaintance with great painting and architecture, everywhere so discernible in her work, has always with her been the customary thing. Private tutors in America, and abroad, spared her the leveling processes of forty lines of Virgil a day, and ten mathematical sums each night. They touched her as a sculptor touches his clay, firmly and caressingly and only to bring out her peculiar excellencies only to help her native genius to expression think of it italy and all the other rich backgrounds 
means social position fine traditions the right surroundings the right mentors the right tastes and a considerable gift to begin with what a mold it is exquisite perhaps unmatched in the instance of any other novelist it is what we dream of for genius and it is what genius would smash to fragments the very fact that mrs wharton had a mold is the best evidence that she is not a genius in the most discriminating sense of a most indiscriminately used word she is not a genius but she moves and always has moved in a world of geniuses from childhood she had of course an easy familiarity with french german and italian the ordinary bounds upon reading the only way of keeping the company of the supremely great of earth were thus swept a measureless distance away french german and italian as well as english literature were accessible to her and the french includes the russian of course she read widely and we are told that when she came upon goethe she was more prepared than the average to take to heart his counsels of perfection and reach after a high and effective culture reach not upward surely there was nothing above her outward perhaps at any rate here was mrs wharton in the actual presence and company of a genius if ever there lived one it is agonizing to think what goethe would have said were he alive these days he would have said the supremely scathing thing the thing that would have withered forever the moral cancer of his countrymen and we cannot articulate it a magical mind and a magical tongue and a magical pen goethe he was always saying sesame we who have not his genius have to batter down the barred door it is to goethe above all other literary influence that mrs wharton feels indebted strike out the word literary the influence of goethe is not a literary influence but an influence proceeding directly from the heart of life itself what sort of an influence is it high pure clean and yet human intangible too about all you can really say of it is that it is like the company of some people who bring out all the best that is in you they do not put into you anything new they draw you out or rather they draw something out of you at the risk of shocking the fastidious reader and to the joy of the literary minded we may say that they are the spiritual equivalent of the mustard plaster they have an equal drawing power and efficacy but they do not draw out the ache but the great glow and spirit which are the incontestable proof of the existence in the human soul of something immortal mrs wharton read widely as we say and she read in the main standard fiction her taste is for george eliot and the ethical teachings of that earlier woman novelist her taste is equally for gustave flaubert the craftsman's master the writer who teaches writers how to write you learn the innermost secrets of your writing craft from flaubert and then you put aside everything you have learned from the master and learn from life balzac thackeray dickens and meredith have been mrs wharton's steady diet she has re-read them so often as repeatedly and contentedly to fall into arrears with respect to current fiction she has had always a great interest in biology and in whatever touches upon the history of human thought this in brief is the substance of edith wharton the woman and the background of edith wharton the novelist we shall not discuss mrs wharton's books in detail in this chapter and book for the best of reasons they leave no room for two opinions of her work of almost no other novelist whom we shall consider would it be possible to say this indeed of some american women novelists there are nearer twenty-two than two opinions some writers like gertrude atherton are subjects of perpetual controversy 
others are the cause of wide but sharply defined cleavages of opinion gene stratton porter for example the work of still others is more properly matter for speculation as to what they may do than estimate of what they have done but mrs wharton falls in none of these classifications there is only one opinion about her work it is excellent but lifeless it is greek marble with no pygmalion near from this sweeping verdict three and only three of her books are to be accepted they are ethan frome and the house of mirth and summer in these three books you can feel the pulse beat in ethan frome the pulse is the feeble quiver of the crushed and dying human heart in the house of mirth there is the slow throb of human suffering and anguish mental no less than spiritual in summer there is the excited and accelerated vibration of human passion it will be taken as a very dogmatic piece of business on our part when we say that her work leaves no room for two opinions was there ever a bit of writing some will ask which could not give birth in the minds of readers to more than one opinion often indeed twin opinions are born to the same reader we must answer that here and hereafter we are dealing with easily ascertainable facts and not indulging in criticism mrs wharton's work leaves room for only one opinion simply because those who might form another opinion do not read her and those who do not read her take their opinions from those who do and then following the instinct of our natures declare quite honestly the borrowed opinion as their own our real audacity consists in the assertion implied in what we have said that all the thousands who read mrs wharton not one believes in his heart for one solitary instant that the mass of her fiction is alive they look upon her work as they look upon the winged victory it is ravishingly beautiful it has perfection of form it has every attribute of beauty possible of attainment by the consummate artist but it has also the severe limitations of any form of art we must pause here a moment to be emphatic art is not life and never can be life is not art and never can be this is just as true of writing as of painting or sculpture all art is necessarily dead all art is necessarily a representation of life or some aspect of it the moment a person begins to paint or to model or to write and allow himself to think of any kind of art in what he is doing he goes into a fourth dimension and life exists in only three dimensions this is not to say that art is undesirable it is highly desirable is in fact almost as necessary to our souls as a fourth dimension is to the mathematician the fourth dimension is a spiritual necessity to the mathematician it is the future life in the terms of his trade and so if a writer would keep life in what he writes he must not think of art at all he must not have any of the artist's special preoccupations he must go at his writing just as he would go at living if he could keep self-consciousness of what he is doing or trying to do entirely out of his work he would succeed completely and succeed completely he never does how nearly he can come to complete success we know from some of kipling o henry most of conrad one book of thomas hardy's we name a few modern writers just for the sake of specific illustration an illustration instantly familiar to any reader of this book mrs wharton is sometimes spoken of as a pupil of henry james and the resemblance is strong in some of her work to that of james but she is not his pupil it is simply a case of the similar products of largely similar inheritances and environment both these writers were from birth well-to-do both had exceptional education and lived and moved in cultivated surroundings 
their endowments were not unlike though more disparate than their circumstances james had a greater gift and ruined it more completely the portrait of a lady is the everlasting witness of what he might have done by the fact of what in that superb novel he did do ethan frome the house of mirth and summer are all inferior to the portrait of a lady and all superior to james's later work if any one tells you otherwise it is because he is thinking in terms of art and not in terms of life and some will tell you otherwise for the world never has lacked those to whom art was more than life just as the world has never lacked those to whom a future life was more than the life of this earth with these we have no quarrel we can but respect them god made them so it takes all kinds of people we agree to make a world if that is so manifestly it takes all kinds of views to get the true view in any triangle the sum of all three angles is equal to two right angles if therefore one of the angles of the triangle is a right angle the sum of the other two will equal a right angle the angle of outlook which sees only the artistry in a piece of literary work added to the angle of outlook which sees only the livingness in the same work may make the right angle which we all aspire to look from books by edith wharton the greater inclination eighteen ninety nine the touchstone nineteen hundred crucial instances nineteen o one the valley of decision nineteen o two sanctuary nineteen o three the descent of man and other stories nineteen o four italian villas and their gardens nineteen o four italian backgrounds nineteen o five the house of mirth nineteen o five madame de tremay nineteen o seven the fruit of the tree nineteen o seven the hermit and the wild woman nineteen o eight a motor flight through france nineteen o eight artemis to actian and other verse nineteen o nine tales of men and ghosts nineteen ten the reef nineteen twelve the custom of the country nineteen thirteen the book of the homeless nineteen fifteen fighting france nineteen fifteen ethan frome the decoration of houses the joy of living zingu and other stories summer published by charles scribner's sons new york summer is published by d appleton and company new york End of chapter 1. Recording by Amanda Friday.